You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 120. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator and head author of the Metamore City Story Universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you, and from time to time, I like to sit down with other writers to interview them about the craft and business of writing. That's what I'm going to do today, so let's get right to it. PC Herring got into the world of podcast fiction in January 2010, with the release of his novel Cybrosis. Like Metamore City's Making the Cut, or T. Morris's Billabub Battings in the case of The Singing Sword, it was a full cast novel with music, voice actors, and sound effects, and it was very well received by the fans. And, also like me and T. Morris, Paul discovered that the full-cast production model wasn't sustainable over the long haul. He had some short stories in the podcast world thereafter, including a Parsec Award-winning story for Tales from the Archives, but he didn't release another novel. Until now, that is. P.C. Herring is back with a new series— the first book of which is called Slipspace Harbinger. I sat down with him at Balticon this year to discuss the book, as well as the long journey from those heady, early days of podcast fiction. Hello, ladies and gents. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City Story Universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. I'm here at Balticon 51 with P.C. Herring. P.C. is a writer and a podcaster. His novel, Cybrosis, made it to number four on the top ten list on patiobooks.com. His fiction has also appeared in Scott Sigler's The Crypt, The Tales from the Archives, and The Chronicles of the Order. He won the 2012 Parsec Award for Best Short Story. His new novel is called Slip Space Harbinger, and it is on sale now. Thanks for coming on the show, PC. Thanks for having me, Chris. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. It's uh, It's been quite a con so far. Hasn't it, though? I mean, my wife and I weren't able to make the Balticon 50, and coming back after two years is like seeing the family all over again. It's the family reunion you want to be at. Yes. I, I tell people, when I'm trying to explain Balticon to people, I say it is podcast nerd homecoming yeah i've also jumped back to the matrix unfortunately nobody can be told what balticon is you must experience it to know (laughs) (laughs) so tell us a bit about this story and how it came to be oh slip space harbinger um in terms of the elevator pitch basically it's a far future space opera that follows the ship and the crew as they respond to a fringe colony going dark This sends them down a rabbit hole of government intrigue, espionage, colliding agendas, and a whole bunch of kablooey kablooey. In terms of the original genesis for it, man, I have to go back a ways for this one because this has been on the brain pan for quite a while. I'd say its earliest inspirations had to be um, Star Trek and the new newer Battlestar Galactica mm-hmm. and that's kind of how I how I would define it is is a Star Trek meets Battlestar kind of a, of a story we are on a ship we are on a lone ship but not the last ship and we are in a military-esque setting so it I had a lot of fun putting it together what would you say in terms of like literary influences were part of the mix for this story then Literary influences, hard to tell because I think they hit me a lot more subtly. Mm-hmm. 
I think he doesn't write military SF, but some of Nathan Lowell's Golden Age and Solar Clipper stories kind of gave me some ideas and some influence in terms of ways to structure things and to lay them out. But this goes back before I was as well read as I am today, so unfortunately I can't really give you a lot of good literary uh, titles to, to, to throw this to. When did you start writing the book? This started back in 2008, maybe? Oh, so even before Cybrosis. Uh, actually, no, this was actually, this came out after Cybrosis, but before Cybrosis was, was released. Cybrosis was definitely the first book. This was the next the one that I started working on. And this is actually pegged as the first in a trilogy. And part of the reason why it's been so long since Cybrosis is that even though only the first book is finished out and in print, all three books in the trilogy are in draft form. So I was able to fully draft the story and then go back and edit book one so I could properly set up things that I want to play with in books two and three. So it sounds like you've really gone into... You've been mindful of creating what Terry Mixon and and Paul Cooley call a minimum viable product Mm -hmm. of having a story that's complete in and of itself but more than one book. Oh, yeah, I try to. I mean, one of the biggest things about this book was a lot of my beta readers and my content editors were saying, there's too much of a book two cliffhanger ending here. You've got you've to wrap up some more story threads here. And I think if a reader picks this up and decides, I don't want to read this universe again, they don't have to. They'll get a complete story. They may not like where some of the characters end up at the end of all this, but it's it's set up with the intention of kind of like the Star Wars model of you've got the story, but there are some threads and some situations that we want to take forward. So it's a true trilogy and not a book divided into three pieces like Tolkien was. It started as a book divided into three pieces. I'm revising it into a true trilogy. Okay. So you started out doing a podcast novel like I did. Cybrosis mm-hmm. uh, came out in 2010, yeah. what I think of as the tail end of the first golden age of podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. Looking back on the podcast author experiment with seven years of hindsight... <laughs> what, it really been that long? <laughs> what did we do right and what did we do wrong? Dear Lord, that's a loaded question. We did right by telling good stories and presenting them in solid quality. We really did. Whether we were going with one voice narration or full cast as you and I did and we sank so much time into the full cast experience, we we definitely did right by putting together a solid end product. What we did wrong, I feel, and I hate to say this because I really like the format, is we sank so much time and energy into it and we're never really able, at least back in the early 2010 decade, we're never really able to recoup our investment of time. Mm-hmm. I love, you know, and I'm not just saying this because I'm on your show, but I love what you did with Things Unseen and that whole... Making the, full, the cut. And, and make, excuse me, making the cut. Rate. Excuse me, making the cut. I apologize. That's okay. I love what you did with making the cut. You know, pulling the voice actors and pulling the, the audio drama aspect in it. I love what I did with Cybrosis in that cast. But... I tried to replicate that with Harbinger, and I tried to do right by my voice actors because we are in a much more monetized model these days, and I hate using that phrase, but it's true. Hobbies are turning into side gigs, which are turning into full-time creative professions, and those who provide their talents deserve to be recognized for the content that they provide. And 
between life, the universe, and everything, to borrow a cliche, it took me a year to produce one full cast chapter of Harbinger. And I looked at it and I said, I can't do this. I just don't have the time. Yeah. Don't um, have the time, don't have the money. No, and that's just, and that's just and that's just it. I mean, even on a royalty share basis. Right. You know, I make my day job as an accountant. I can handle a spreadsheet where I put a number in for the month and it computes out. A gets this and, you know, everybody gets this stuff, but it's still all the bookkeeping. It's all of the, you know, who got paid, who didn't get paid. It's it's all that administrative that just takes time away from the ability to produce. Mm-hmm. Audible coming to the front has helped, you know, make this a little bit easier of a hurdle to gap or to, to jump, excuse me. But at the same time, Audible standards are not necessarily favorable to a full cast. They want that more traditional book-on-tape single narrator kind of a a situation. Because mostly that's what people buy. That is, exactly. So what we did wrong was we spent way too much time in producing it. And I'm not saying we were wrong to do it. But from a career standpoint, we did not make our return on investment back. Right. And that time that we spent trying to wrangle audio and doing all the post-production, mm-hmm. all of that was time that we weren't spending writing the next yeah. novel. Or time spending with our families. I mean, or when I was producing with Cybrosis, I was single. I was living on my own. I was just out of grad school. I was more than happy. I had nothing to do. But I wasn't able to pursue some of the other non-writing things that enrich me in my life. And had I suckered all this time away in Harbinger without going into those things, I would not have met my wife, (laughs) at least not in the same circumstances. Right. So, yeah, this... (laughs) The full cast podcast novel, it's a great thing for holding off the existential dread of being alone. (laughs) (laughs) There's some truth to that. (laughs) For anything else, it's not worth your time. (laughs) So... For this new book, you switched from doing cyberpunk to mm-hmm. doing space opera. Yep. The change in genre, was that a marketing decision or a creative decision? It was a creative decision. My first sci-fi experience goes back to the to the space opera. I mean, I was a child of Star Trek Next Gen. No, right. no question about it. And this project is a parallel property to my codename Cyrus Universe. I'm not abandoning either. I intend to develop both individually. And it's, it's not apparent in either book, but behind the scenes, I'm leaving open the, the possibility of maybe all of my properties being in a continuing, like Sigler does with all of his stuff, in a, in a straight continuing universe and, and with a full continuity. So mm-hmm. it was more of, this is the idea that's in my head, this is what I feel like writing now, and so this is what's going to get written. Right on. In, from the business side of things... How has your approach to any of the aspects of the business of being a writer changed from the podcast, you know, from Subrosis? Obviously, not doing the full cast podcast novel anymore. Mm -hmm. But apart from that, what are you doing differently this time around? Well, I'm trying to keep myself a little bit more tight to schedules and my own self-imposed deadlines. How are you doing that? Um, poorly at the moment. It's it's a, it, it's a it's it's a learned experience. It's one of those things where, for the final content edit to Slip Space, I was fortunate in that I was getting married at the time, mm. and I knew my my editor was not going to be able to take 
the edit until February of, of no, it was January 2017, excuse me. And my wife, or my fiance at the time, looked at me and she said, if you are editing this book two weeks before we are supposed to get married in November, there will be blood and it will not be mine. <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I knew that. And so I scheduled to be done with the book and sent it to the editor by August. And I said to my editor, I said, I know you don't have an opening until January. I'm not asking for you to make a shift. I'm not going to even follow up with you on it until the end of January. I'm just getting it off my plate. So that's helped. And, you know, it, it hasn't been the smoothest of rollouts. I've had some scheduling bumps and hiccups and some things like that. But I'm getting a better picture of what the landscape looks like today. I mean, like you said, the last time I put a book out was 2010. And a lot has changed since then. In some cases, and with good reason, I'm really restarting my career. I mean, unless you're certain big-name authors, a six-year gap between releases is a death knell for a writer's career. Yeah. So, you know, now that I'm done taking professional certifications, now that I'm done planning for a large wedding, now that life is starting to come into a new sense of stability, I'm in a much better place to sit down and say, okay... I can get this book knocked out in this time and, the, and, you know, and start really kind of hammering that out. Frankly, at this point, as a self-published author, the biggest problem is the budget, not so much the time. Mm. You know, the, the old adage of money flows to the writer is valid if you have a, a contract with, the, with a, a third-party publisher. Well, I mean, hold on. It's true in general, but mm -hmm. the problem is you're not just a writer. You're right. also a publisher. Right. You're also an editor. Mm -hmm. You're also a... Producer. Producer. Mm -hmm. Right, so the money is flowing in the direction of the author, right. but all these other jobs... But it has to filter into the publishing house first. Right, exactly. So, you know, <laughs> I have to, you know, I have to make sales. I have to start up a Patreon, which is, I actually just started one up just a couple weeks ago, and, you know, work on budgeting for the finances that are needed to hire a professional editor to hire a professional narrator, to hire the cover artist, to hire the layout designer, all the things that the publishing houses do, that once the author gets his or her contract, they don't necessarily have to worry about because the third-party publisher is handling that matter. Mm -hmm. What resources have you been drawing on in order to educate yourself on the business side of your writing? Well... From the financial side of things, I feel like I'm pretty well educated as, as it is. Like I said, I'm, I work as an accountant. I, I can track my finances going in and out. The trick for me is, like you mentioned, finding the right resources. I'm talking with other hybrid authors, other self-published authors, and I'm watching what they're doing, and I'm saying, okay, I like that. And I'll, you know, for example, you do something that I like, Chris, and I'll reach out to you and say, okay, what did you do? Can you put me in touch with these people? And everybody I've talked to, even if they haven't given me the answer I expect to get, have been extremely helpful and extremely open. I've had authors put me in contact with publicity people. I've had authors say, oh, no, I'm not doing anything. I'm just doing a, a Photoshop of a teaser Tuesday quote every day or whatever it happens to be. And starting to see some traction on some of these things. It's, it's, um, it's very much a, a, a relearning of some certain basic skills that I thought I had figured out. <laughs> What's your social media strategy for this book launch? Right now, social media strategy is primarily on Facebook. I'm doing a teaser Tuesday that hits Instagram and Twitter as well. I have a group in Facebook. I have my own website, which probably needs a little more attention than it's getting, but I know the majority of my audience is on Facebook. 
I've got a couple of sponsored boosted posts running through Facebook, which I can see is getting some traction there. And then starting on July 9th or whatever, no, July 11th, whatever that Monday is, I will be doing a 30-day virtual blog tour for the book. Oh, cool. So we'll see We'll see how that goes. Who do you have lined up for your blog? I honestly don't know yet. I'm working through a third party who organizes it, and, as, and at the time of the recording, the schedule has not been finalized. Gotcha. Okay, cool. What do you think is your biggest strength as a writer? I've got a very vivid image of what I'm writing in my mind. I've been told I can that sometimes makes me a little wordy in my prose, but if I'm doing an epic space battle between three fleets that are all going at it, I need to know in my mind where each side's coming from and not necessarily each little maneuver that every single one of my hundreds of fighters on the grid are going to do, but I need to know the broad strokes. And I think that's one of my best characteristics, especially in, in Harbinger. I'm very proud of some of the choreography I've put together. What's something that you've learned about the craft of your writing that you didn't know seven years ago? Mm, good question. Um, I can be repetitive. Not necessarily in using the same tropes or the same you know, catchphrase that a character always says or what have you, but some of my readers in the early edits were saying, I'm reading this scene... And then I read the same scene again 40 pages later. Oops. <laughs> you know, I, I, I forget that I've already put this idea down and it's already been communicated. In actually the original draft of the third book, I kill a character. And then 30 pages later, that dead character who's not dead suddenly does something else and lives. <laughs> it's oh dear. like, yeah, that's going to need an edit when I get back to it. <laughs> yeah, think? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's all good. But I think one of the the biggest things I've learned is trying to keep things tight. Harbinger is about 110,000 words. Its original draft was 150. Mm -hmm. And my editor basically looked at it, and she said about this 40,000 word, well, 35,000 word section. She said, it's great. It's great storytelling, but it reads like a side plot to a Star Trek movie. Mm. Cut it. And I didn't want to cut it because I liked it, but she was right. It was a distraction. And I re-outlined the book and trimmed it down, and it's a much tighter read. And those 35,000 words are saved off for another project. That was my next question. Oh, yeah. Good. Never delete. Never no. delete. <laughs> <laughs> You'll use it somewhere. I will use it somewhere. <laughs> What's a story that you want to tell that you haven't gotten a chance to tell yet? Mm. I've got a couple of stories in mind. One thing that's kind of got me going at the moment is... It's a modern-day piece. I mean, it's, it's technically spec-fic, but it's not cyberpunk. It's not space opera. It's basically, the premise is, it's an end-of-the-world kind of a story. It's, it's a polar vortex snowstorm combined with massive solar flares, completely kills the power grid in the country, and leaves society buried in about, you know, five, ten feet of snow. And I've got this idea of a non-linear story with a male and female character, which is less about them saving the world and more about them as characters and their interactions with each other. It's not necessarily, you know, can we make the world a better place? Can we rebuild? It's more of, can we make ourselves better? And can we rebuild our broken lives and or our relationships? It's still in very early development. It's potentially got a new 
property line that could be multiple titles in the same universe, same story threads. But that's really all I want to say about it at this point. Fair enough. Do you think that once the trilogy is done, that you'll see Slip Space be uh, expanded out into further spin-off titles? Oh, absolutely. There's no question. I've got one brainstorm for the descendants of a couple characters in, in this trilogy. I've got another brainstorm that takes place several hundred years before the trilogy, where we learn how a certain alien species in the book became who they are. So there's definite stories to be told. I've built Slip Space. I've built the Slip Space universe big intentionally. Actually, Metamorph City was a was a inspiration for how I built this because I liked I like the way you've got this gigantic world built up where you can tell all the kinds of different stories you feel like telling and you can pull characters or not as you see fit. Well, thank you. So what are you offering your patrons on Patreon? Uh, at the moment, the, pay, the, the immediate goals for subscriptions are um, obviously behind the paywall, previews. I mean, un, I mean, behind the paywall, I'll have previews of works in process, maybe random excerpts, interviews that may be exclusive, um, like recordings at panels that I might make or things like that. Leveled tiered rewards are pretty basic at the moment, but I've left room to expand. Free copies of ebooks, free copies of arcs, allowing a patron to be a named element in one of my stories, whether they're a character or a ship or a place or something like that. Uh, make no promises of when, where, or how. And then free copies of signed prints shipped to your door ahead of about two weeks ahead of release are certain levels. The milestone goals I've set I'm trying not to set them too high at the moment the infrequent audio updates at the first tier uh, turns into a once monthly podcast exclusive for the patrons at the second tier the patrons will receive free copies of the audio before it goes live anywhere else including audible or on the podcast feed on my site and then at the third tier that I currently have to find that once monthly podcast turns into a bi-weekly podcast so all in all, it's it's small, but I'm trying to cultivate it a little bit, and then as things hopefully theoretically grow, we'll expand that out a little bit. Cool. So, Harbinger's out. When can we expect the next two books in the trilogy? Slipspace Shadow Play. I would like to see out within the next year. As we talked about earlier, the budget is a concern, so we'll have to see how that goes, and then. The third book in Slip Space, which is tentatively titled, but I'm not going to reveal it, will hopefully be within a year or so after that. Again, the budget is the is the constraining factor. Right. Spirit's willing, but the checkbook's got to come first sometimes. I hear you. So what are you working on writing right now, then? Right now, I've discovered, well, take back a, a month or two, I discovered a new piece of timeline software, which is just a wonderful piece of computer technology, if I may. Can I pimp it? Sure. So the software is called Aeon Timeline 2. I think it's both Windows and Mac. I'm using it on a Windows 10 machine at the moment. But it's completely customizable. It's got date calculations, and you know, you plug in a character's birthday, and you give an event, and they'll say, oh, this character is five years and three months old. It's like, oh, he's too young to be doing that. You can, you know, it's really, it's really nice. It's infinitely customizable. And I've been putting both the events in that have been kind of littered in my Bible for both Codename Cyrus and Slip Space. I've been spending a lot of time incorporating that over there with the gear towards using that to help inform and develop new new projects. Um, Shadow Play, which is the next Slip Space book in the trilogy, will need some revisions as any first draft will. 
and there are some things in the timeline that, that have revealed themselves in, in interesting ways that I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. It, it's really weird when you start plugging these things in. You realize and, and, things juxtapose in yeah, interesting ways. Yeah, yeah. It was like, oh, that's good to know. And so it's going to require a little bit of tweaking and a little bit of adjusting, but I'm, I'm very happy. So what I'd say is I'm filling in the backstory and filling out the World Bible a little bit to push forward both in Slipspace and in Codename Cyrus. Awesome. Do you have any other convention appearances this year? Not this year. Balticon is kind of the highlight. There might be, and I'm, I'm not in a position to announce anything yet, there might be a couple things local to my hometown in Chicago that may be coming up during the summer or during the rest of the year, but my wife and I need to look at the schedules and see if they're feasible this time. Cool. Where can people find your stuff? My books are available exclusively at Amazon.com, both Cybrosis, A Codename Cyrus Conspiracy, and Slipspace Harbinger. They are available in print and for your Kindle. I can be found on Facebook under PC Herring as my personal page. I have a fan page at Fans of PC Herring, very easy to find. My website is PCHerring.net, and my Patreon is at Patreon.com slash PCHerring. Social media-wise, I'm on Twitter at PC Herring, and I'm on Instagram at PC Herring. Awesome. Thanks so much for being on the show, PC. Not a problem, Chris. Thank you for having me. And that was our interview. I hope you enjoyed it. Winston Churchill said, Writing a book is an adventure. To begin with, it is a toy and an amusement. Then it becomes a mistress. Then it becomes a master. Then it becomes a tyrant. The last phase is that just as you are about to be reconciled to your servitude, you kill the monster and fling him to the public. So, grab your torches and sharpen your pitchforks, because it's time for your weekly writing report. I wrote 5,633 words this week, over the course of 7.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 777 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 96 days without breaking my chain. This week I continued working on Breaking Hell, the first book of the Goetic Age trilogy. I'm continuing to focus on the Angel storyline, which starts at the beginning of the universe, and eventually catches up with the human protagonists at the beginning of book two. So far, I've written about 6,400 words. One of the most fun things about this project is getting to put my own spin on the mythology of heaven and hell. Everybody knows John Milton's version of this story, how Lucifer was the first and greatest of the angels, and how his pride led him to rebel against God and then be cast out of heaven. Lucifer, now called Satan, then works to corrupt the world God created by tempting Adam and Eve to sin. Milton tells a great story, and he tells it so well that it's embedded itself in our cultural consciousness, so much so, in fact, that a lot of people actually think that story is in the Bible. But I wanted to take a different approach, one that takes into account what we know about the world in 2017 that we didn't know in 1667. We know the universe is billions of years old, that Earth is one planet among many, in a universe with untold billions of stars. We know that modern humans evolved about 200,000 years ago, and at least once in our history, we nearly went extinct. How do these changes in our perspective change the story? If we imagine that angels are real, what were they doing for the first 13.7 billion years before we came along? Why would they even care about Earth or its humans in the middle of such a vast universe? 
It's been a lot of fun figuring out answers to these questions. If you want to see what I'm coming up with, you can follow along with my progress at the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show, take a minute and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2017 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.